This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. This HealthEd educational segment is sponsored by Reckitt. All content is the true, accurate, and independent opinion of the expert, and the views expressed are entirely their own. When a patient presents with acute pain, often our focus is on pain minimization and, and an early return to function. We may miss the yellow flags, which, when missed, can set the patient on a course toward a chronic pain cycle. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Joyce McSwan. Joyce, tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi, David. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, so I'm actually by background a clinical pharmacist, and that were my, that was my original training and discipline from Monash University. Uh, since then, I've sort of got into a lot of clinical roles in working closely in primary healthcare, which is my sort of specialty and comfort area. Working with GPs uh, back in the days, doing medication reviews, and then progressively over the last uh, 15 years, I've been niching a lot of my practice into pain management. So I've sort of created pain programs and implemented pain services specifically for primary health, where services are, you know, in dire need. And we all know about tertiary clinics that are sometimes a very long wait list. So my, I suppose, innovation was very much to support primary health and, you know, to challenge the idea about how pain and particularly chronic pain, which is a disease in its own right, that that can be managed through primary health if there was support for uh, primary health providers like GPs, allied health. So I spent a lot of time um, working in that space and working very closely with GPs with all kinds of pain conditions. Well, Joyce, I'm so glad to speak with you because, you know, as GPs, we all see patients with pain many times a day. But we're going to specifically focus on the management of back pain today. So, Joyce, um, why don't you take us through how to think about back pain? Uh, We can imagine a patient coming to see a GP. Uh, Why don't we imagine a patient, say she's 58, and she comes and complains of back pain? Yeah, absolutely. I think those are very common. And in fact, globally and in Australia, back pain, lower back pain is probably the highest uh, global disease burden. So it's a very costly thing for the healthcare system. And it um, is also, you know, very demanding on the practitioner that sees them, uh, whether they're a GP or allied health um, or in fact pharmacy. And so when a lady like 58 years old come, I think the first thing is to really determine whether it's an acute or a chronic occasion. That, that, that says a lot in terms of how you intervene as the next step. So we know the difference between acute, it's obviously, you know, the first episode of seeing it, it's short-lived, it's, you know, maybe within the last few weeks at the very most or if not the last day so very short-lived and in an acute setting this is where we've got the greatest opportunity to to really limit and mitigate the progression because one of the reasons why it's such a global disease burden is because it progresses 
and it's very insidious. So when you hear of someone who's acutely, you know, had an episode, that's where you need to really, you know, assess well. Definitely don't over-investigate. I think that's very critical. Work out, you know, your red flags uh, and what we call yellow flags. Yellow flags are incredibly important in acute low back pain because we know that they're the single risk factors for chronicity. So that is a predictor for chronicity. So if we hear of yellow flags, and for example, if you've not heard of yellow flags, yellow flags are very much the beliefs of the patients, particularly belief of harm, belief of uh, progression to chronicity, um, you can hear the language, you know, is very catastrophic. Um, you can hear a lot of fear-based talk going on. And that's a real highlighter. And, and I think in the acute setting, that's probably the most important thing to try to pick up, even before you think about, you know, further biomechanical type of investigations. And of course, you want to rule out your red flags, which is also critical because you want to know what's in your space to manage and what's not in your space to manage and that risk assessment is really important so these days we try to do what we call risk uh, stratification so if you're suspicious but not sure yet and sometimes that's the case because you also don't have that long to talk and reassure the patient you know pragmatically in a practice time you may not be sure but you've got a little hunch so a risk mitigation strategy is important, which means that you have to get them to come back to see you, but you may not jump in straight away to do, you know, heavy investigations. And that can sometimes for patients really escalate their poor beliefs already. So the risk stratification process is really, really critical. Um, and that can come in a very natural dialogue with this 58-year-old lady, you know, how you feel about it, what are you thinking about it, is it worrying you, uh, and then do some biomechanical examinations, what to stand, stand to sit, you know, do put your hands on them just to localise it. Is it spreading? Is it localised? Is there, you know, sharp shooting uh, descriptors or is it dull aching gnawing is there muscular tension largely we know that lower back pain is actually the non-specific lower back pain it's not the type that results in nerve involvement so that's a rarity the patient will describe it sounding like it is like that so there that that can alarm the the provider you know the therapist so that's from the acute sort of a uh, 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 setting yeah in the chronic setting though David that's very different that is a disease in its own right a chronic lower back pain setting and that really needs a, a lot more time mm -hmm. do, do you mind if I come back to the chronic setting in half a minute because you've just said something really really crucial for me and that is that a patient coming in with their own if you like beliefs of harm, uh, beliefs of progression, they are already cued and ready to read my verbal and non-verbal messages very clearly. And if I so far as help them confirm their fears, either by looking surprised or looking that I am concerned or wanting to investigate very quickly, 
uh, I might actually trigger a whole series of events which might not be helpful. And your point to us is, guys, sit down, listen well, watch, and understand where these patients actually coming from. We have a need to prioritize and stratify the high risk red flags, get rid of them, find them. But if you're not sure yet, you will have a system of mitigation where we have this wonderful opportunity to review them and see how they go. But your point is crucial and I've never heard of the term red flags to really understand the patient's concerns. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's critical. And your body language in this touch point, you know, five seconds, 10 seconds, the minute you, you frown. <laughs> or, I mean, on the other hand, if you show concern to a really, you know, enabling way, that can really put them into a fear cycle. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, on the other hand, not believing uh, body language that shows you sort of go, oh, okay, well, no big deal, you know. And, and these are so involuntary, mm-hmm. you know, on a busy day, you have mm-hmm. to, you really have to use a lot of energy to have a lot of self-control to not react. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, I always say to practitioners and anybody who's caring for patients, you actually have to be very mindful you have to practice mindful therapeutics Mm -hmm. because you've got to be there in that moment and it takes a lot of energy out of your day you know your your moment that that's why you know you get so exhausted after a day of of seeing patients because particularly for those who are mindfully practicing your disciplining yourself to not react all the time to you know to nod and of course those body languages that are helpful um you know are nodding you know putting your hands on the spot whether you're you know investigating or not just having interest in that touch response is very reassuring you know touching and saying look I I can see that um, this is concerning you I can see that you are definitely not comfortable however look how about we come back in a couple of days or in a week you do this you know reassure do this short process whatever it might be might be a bit of short-term simple analgesia it might be just good old you know low continuous heat pack give them something that is often of a you know somewhat satisfactory but reassure them that this is not all I will attend to you on you know Mm. keeps the times down keeps you then thinking through all right this is not a red flag situation but if it were please ring me and these are, you know, these are the red flag signs. And, and red flags, as you say before, they're things like neurological deficits. They're things like if you happen to fall from this, you know, please get back to me straight away. Um, and giving the patients very tangible symptoms that they can look out for so that they're reassured that go, okay, well, if this doesn't occur, then right, doctor said, that I should be okay, but I'll still review. So be very specific with, with what that looks like rather than go, look, if it's red flag, then I'll, I'll, we'll be worried in a week, you know, but what does red flag mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. And it doesn't have to take very long at all. If you're very specific, targeted with your body language, I think you can go a long way, even in assessing yourself what they, you know, what, what their knee-jerk reaction is like to your request because some patients who have got these beliefs they may not be satisfied with even you know 
this reassurance. They may think that you're underplaying the situation. So giving them evidence such as, all right, well, I'm not hearing any red flags, which looks like this. This is when we would worry. You're not presenting that, but please monitor that for me. So it, it, it's, they're not left high and dry with some simple energies and just heat packs. They're actually got, okay, I've got this to look out for. Now, of course, you know, that can come with a double-edged sword. <laughs> On the one hand, you tell someone to go look out for it three days time, they ring you back and they say, oh, it's happened. <laughs> um, but I suppose it's not just a singular, it's got to be a few red flags that then, yeah, confirms or denies the situation. I'm going to use the word, um, the use, if you like, of therapeutic safety netting. Because, you know, the number of times one being tired and busy can say, get back to me if it gets worse. What you're really saying is, no, they actually need very clear symptoms that they understand, tangible symptoms, as you said. And therefore the safety netting itself is part of our therapy, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and measurable. So, you know, if you have a fall and you cannot get back up, you know, it, very, very descriptive, you know, or if you lie down in bed and after 10 minutes, your pain is still not settled. So it's very measurable, mm -hmm. you know, of course, immediately when they lie down, they're still throbbing and aching. That's not a red flag. But if you were to read the red flags books, they would say on lying down, there's still pain. So I think you've got to be very specific to the patients. Go look at my throb, but we would see that it would subside throbbing. It's less noisy. Now that's great. That's your body actually capable of relaxing those muscles. Perfect. We've got something to work with there. No worries, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and colloquial words, it'll be okay. This is, you know, this is, the, like you say, the, the, the therapeutic safety net or safe. This is safe. Safe is a, a very comforting word, you know. These points get you from where you came in before, feeling quite unsafe. But now with these measurable points that you'll go away and monitor for me, we are definitely in a safer zone here because you've got some information now. You know, something as simple like that, those words are very powerful. Now, I don't want to dwell on this for too long because you've covered it beautifully at this stage. I know there's investigations to come. I want to put that off a little because I just want to deal now with the same issues now in a patient with chronic pain. Yes, so as I said before, chronic um, pain and chronic anything really is a disease in its own right. And pain took a long time to get there. It is now recognised in the ICD-11, which is classification of diseases, to be a chronic disease in its own right. And chronic um, low back pain is definitely no different. What I mean by that is it is now very much part of impact in the fabric of the patient's life. So the patient's uh, functional impact is more than the mechanical issues itself. The mechanical issues in and of themselves, it doesn't remain as just the mechanical issue. The, the other areas surrounding it, you know, tissues, musculoskeletal uh, areas, um, even potentially, you know, peripheral nerve fibres, they're making a little bit more of a noise as well, you know. So from a, a pathological point of view, there's more involved than just the joint 
process itself or just the muscular process itself in the acute setting. Now we're talking more about, you know, uh, psychological impact as well, having the biopsychosocial involvement. We're talking about, you know, familial issues and relationship issues and uh, job issues. So, so we're going now into a real disease state where definitely the impact of function and disability and distress, all those things combined is, is now part of the disease state. So the management, as you can imagine, because everything is now so... Um, synergized, that they are definitely, um, treatment has to be equally synergized to match. Treatment cannot be singularly just pathological. It has to be a, a, a whole of, um, you know, whole of project approach, you know, like a building project, right? You, you, you don't just build your door and think that's going to give you you know, cover on a rainy day. You have to build the roof. You have to build the walls. You have to build the rooms inside. And that's really the project management of managing a patient in chronicity and helping them to understand the meaningful why of that. So typically, you know, the GP or allied health will start to navigate the person on a journey of all these recruits. We must be mindful that we do that with priority and with meaning so that they're not going round and round the merry-go-round on now a medical circuit, which will only escalate um, particularly their beliefs of disease. Wow. Now, <laughs> I'm going to try to pick through that incredibly powerful teaching you've just given me. The first is, it almost appears to me that if I am dealing with this 58-year-old woman with chronic pain issues, my role is not as a GP primarily to ease her pain. Now, it almost seems as if my role can be uh, the project uh, officer who then brings other members onto my team, explains why they're there, and uh, describes our boundaries and our function and our duties so we can set the patient's expectations for each of us right before they start on a journey. Is that what you're trying to say? Absolutely. And patients may come in not with that expectation. Patients may come in thinking typically that their average GP would be prescribing a singular option. Mm -hmm. um, and that's their expectation. So sometimes that's the struggle whereby here we are telling doctors to kind of adopt the project manager role and then on the other hand patients also come in going well I thought you were just the doorknob on the door now just give me the doorknob you know which is like a pill a tablet you know seeking so I think it's very important that first of all there is the explanation and the alignment with the patient of your intention rather than go off on the the grand plan before that that expectations aligned okay. because because what can be a very good intention and good practice by the GP can be actually misinterpreted by the patient. They might think, oh, the doctor just wants to chuff me off and, you know, send me to all these other people. And really that's, that's you know, I, I thought I came to him for a medication. Joyce, let, let's do something really practical. Talk to me as a patient so that you can help me align my needs to your agenda. Yeah, absolutely. So in this 58-year-old patient, obviously, if she's in a chronic cycle, the very first thing you need to give some education on 
is, and use what I call evidential education. So don't just didactically say, you know, chronic pain is a disease. You know, did you know you have got a disease now? <laughs> um, and and be too, you know, be too sort of um, didactic that way. You could go, have you noticed, um, let's say, Mrs. Jones, that, you know, when you get anxious because you can't go to work and you can't do a full day's work, that you actually, your pain goes up? Have you noticed that? You know, and, and obviously, or have you had any disagreements with family because of your pain? And then you find that you get anxious about your pain and get worried about your pain, and then the pain goes up as well. So that kind of conversation, and most patients will know that, or they'll say, or, or use other things like, you know, sleep, for example. Have you noticed that your sleep does get disrupted because of your pain? What I'm trying to highlight there is, Mrs. Jones, there are contributing factors mm -hmm. to your pain that are not just about the back that tells me that now the body's a bit more chronic in this pain and, and you've had it for a long time now so we need to address these um, other contributing factors can also impact the pain just as how they came we can try and reduce them as well you know what do you think about that so you have a quick chat about that and, and you're using her evidence so you're not you're not giving new evidence yet i get the drift so, so really, it's for us to play detective and find out as many parts of your their lives that either are disrupted by the back pain or they have limited uh, because of pain or the fear of pain and then work from there. Absolutely. And find out what's their priority because um, and ask them to contribute. What other things can you think of that's contributed to your pain? So the big word there is contributing factors, because when you get that dialogue, they start to realize that there are other areas and then they prioritize. So if you say then, OK, of all these areas, Mrs. Jones, like where would you like to start? Because and, and this is the this is a tagline I find really helpful for anybody and probably especially GPs. This is a line where you then say, the best thing I can do for you mm -hmm. is to really help you to manage these contributing factors. And look, if it takes one at a time, we'll just we'll just disseminate them one at a time. But I can really do that for you. You know, so you're giving of your best, you're using their evidence and you're asking them, where would you like to start? patients aren't silly they know what their pains do to them they don't necessarily in the fog of pain in the noise of pain be they can't problem solve one of the reasons is because our cortical area in our brain talking more neuropathologically now is very much um affected and it is interrupted by the signals of pain so they can't logically sometimes deduce how to problem solve or even how to start so by you sort of imprinting the options there gives them a chance to go oh sure I didn't think it was that simple great okay so then you ask them where they start they say they want to prioritize their sleep great okay let's look at that a little bit more may have to do you know sleep apnea investigations potentially they're you know if they're obese um there may be other investigations you want to do from a sleep aspect but that also takes away from the investigation of the mri <laughs> that they started wanting to come for in the first place so important isn't it because i can imagine that all these other factors would be adding to the complex issue of neuroplasticity that they're locked in absolutely and the inflammatory cycle 
now getting a little bit more sort of, you know, biological as well, uh, truly the cycle of what's keeping them as well in chronicity is very much the other parts of the body, the comorbidities that are playing into this now as well, which is what's making it even more, you know, chronic. Can you explain that a little further? So typically with chronic disease, we, you know, there are many, many synergies in other comorbidities that occur. Now, inflammation, we now understand, is also very much part of the pain cycle. And especially in a chronic uh, type of uh, low back pain setting, you can get inflammation in muscular, uh, you know, skeletal tissues. You can get inflammation in neuro fibers. So that can all come from other comorbidities, whether obesity being a really big one, there can be gut issues as well, being another, you know, uh, emerging area field of, um, of, of chronic disease understanding and management. There can be other post-viral issues that have come about, and we must be very cognizant of that in this uh, post-COVID setting. We will see some of those comorbidities. So these are the gray zones that overlap now with low back pain that will add to the contributing factors for sure. So again, maybe their priorities to the lady as well, and even cardiovascular, diabetes, health, you know, those things can be part of the chronic low back pain cycle. Osteoarthritis being really close to close to that, you know, the, the generalized arthropathies. You have just asked us to step right back from the back itself now. Uh, And I really appreciate this because you're saying, David, listen, we are talking about inflammation in general. Have a look at the patient because there are many reasons why they can have an inflammatory body system from issues with gut microbiome, to various things in our diet that are actually pro-inflammatory rather than anti-inflammatory. For example, the omega-3 oils, fatty acids being anti-inflammatory and possibly the omega-6 PUFAs being pro-inflammatory. You mean, do we need to think down to these sorts of levels? Absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, obviously time limited, I get, it in a consultation because our listeners might be now thinking, gosh, I don't have that long. And that's where you build on the story and you just give the lady a little, a little, you know, window of going, I have so much more (laughs) now that we've just started to highlight a couple of contributing factors. So the agreement that there are contributing factors, (laughs) we can look at so many other contributing (laughs) factors. And if we do detonate them, we actually sort you know sort the right trees in the forest out we just don't do a gunfire shot of whatever with a pill that might go wherever and probably land on the wrong tree and that way we can really find the forest trees and you know get the really good ones that we want and then we're very targeted in a still in that project management way so that, that will form the rest of the education to come. And you may find, I mean, I, I love, you know, new words, believe it or not, like, oh, gut microbiome, new words like, you know, omega, and they may not necessarily be new, but words like pro and uh, inflammatory and anti, those words give, build what I call curiosity in the patient. So it's a slight distraction, no doubt, but 
you're not fibbing about it. You're delivering good sites, but it gives them curiosity. And you can even let them go do some homework and go, you look up, you know, gut microbiome. I'll write this word down and, you know, give them good, credible sites to look up and um, have them prepared. Don't be there searching through Google yourself at that point because that won't give much confidence. But if you've got a couple of nice ones that you think, look, look up these areas and you come back and give me more on that, mm. you're now collaboration on the pro- collaborating on the project. You are actually giving hope in the sense that I can see that the patient's previous journey would have been the trialling of various analgesics with and without success they were probably have been put onto various types of antidepressants and anti-epileptic agents to aid uh, analgesia. And, and that's the kind of journey that they're on. What you're trying to say is that, look, there's so many things causing your pain. You tell me which one's the most important to you, the one that is most restricted by, the one that is most disrupted by. And let's just see how we can make a progress in that. And I also hear what you're saying is that you then teach them little things about inflammation and tell them that there's just so much here that I can do with you and that the road is in fact quite a big road to walk on, but I will walk it with you and I will teach you along the way and you will be supported. Um, Is that the kind of feeling I'm, I I, I mean, I'm getting that feeling, but is that the feeling you want to give to the patient? Absolutely. And that's actually what we call the the new word, actually, in healthcare, if no one's heard about it yet, is a 10-year-old recommendation from the Harvard School. And that's what we start to call value-based healthcare, because it's not that transactional fee-for-service, which frankly, doctors, I think, get very tired of you know when they feel like they've given something of a gem and the patient feels like they've got something more patients I think in this day and age are definitely more aware of options and when they feel like they're given value from someone who's willing to look outside the box, so to speak. It's really not outside the box, but it feels like it is because not many will subscribe to working this way. They will come back. They will simply go, gee, I had a good dialogue with my doctor who listened to me and will help me project manage this. Chronic patients are aware that while they want to hunt for the fix, so to speak, initially, they also are aware that there may not necessarily be the magic bullet. So it's being sort of able to validate that, but also be able to go, well, why are we looking for just one fix when there could be so many others? Because we're going to be finding your many contributing factors and there could be many, many fixes that will write this a lot better than what you came in at first looking for. So that, as you say, gives them now not just one option, but many options and hope is really really key the other perspective of this choice that just come to me is this i have now probably been to so many doctors and specialists through so many revolving doors that really as a human being i am beginning to feel not just being a problem for the doctor but i'm not feeling really regarded as a human myself because they often see me as a problem or the person who's caused the problem. What you're saying is that 
when you give persons regard for their humanity and understand them, give them value, tell them we want to help. But, you know, as you said, maybe in time to come, they may very quickly realize that there's no magic bullet. But here's someone who is willing to listen to my story. And every time we identify an issue to be fixed, he will find someone to work with me who can help me along the way. I'm broken in many places and therefore I will need many people to help me, all of whom I will do one at a time. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yeah, we must be mindful that um, we also don't want to send them out to five therapists all at once. And I always say to my patients, look, we are going to cook a smorgasbord. Hmm but we're not going to eat it all together all at once because we'll all get a tummy ache. So it's kind of like, oh, there's lots to eat. Okay, but let's just chomp a bit at a time. You know, let's just enjoy each one. And, and that's when that meaningful navigation I was talking about comes in because then now, by now, I will guarantee you they're getting excited. Mm-hmm. By now, there's, you have mm-hmm. drummed this up so well. Mm-hmm. And it's all very backed by science that they're like, oh, my goodness, I feel hopeful. Mm-hmm. I feel excited. When mm-hmm. can we start, you know? And, again, you also, because in the chronic cycle, typically they can be very much, um, you know, boom and busters. So they, they go all hard trying some new thing and then, oh, not anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's that pacing of just inclusions that are meaningful. And that's also where being careful to select the priority that's why I say prioritize but then the the right fit for the person whom they're going to see and if possible if at all possible you know even a quick note to the person you're referring to even with a couple of liners that sort of says look target goal is this in the first place whatever that might mean you know it could be just gentle desensitization breathing techniques to start off with very movement phobic. Um, so it just gives the therapist a good background to not go strength conditioning, you know, train for the Olympics. Um, you're kind of just giving the, the, the referred person. Well, I'm going to stop you because your words are not the words we would be using because I can guarantee you the words we would be using would be strengthen, increase mobility, those sorts of words. But those are not the goals that you're describing both to the patient So goal setting, talk to me about goal setting, because I don't want to just talk about clinical goal sets. Your goal set seems to be very person oriented. Absolutely. Because one of the foundational things you find in pain is from that very fear avoidance and uh, protective human uh, innate response is that we we tension, We, we don't relax. That's, that's part of how humans are made. People apologize all the time about, I'm so sorry, I'm so tense. It's like, no, don't be. That's how you're made. It's okay. We've just got to learn how to recognize that. So absolutely, desensitization is a very, very, very important word in chronicity. Without desensitizing pain through many, many ways, movement, simple breathing, Um, And when I say simple breathing, not just our involuntary way of breathing, actually mindful, uh, mindfully learning how to, you know, do a breathing exercise doesn't have to be 
uh, in a sort of a mindful state. It can just be, you know, counting in and out, that exhalation, inhalation type of more, uh, you know, more metric-driven breathing, I would say. Um, for people not used to psychological styles of techniques, they can feel like you're, you know, saying that it's all in their head. So you got to be very mindful of that. But simple techniques that a um, exercise physiologist or an, a physio can teach them in the early days really helps a fear avoidance so that they don't think that they're being sent to a movement expert for immediate strength conditioning, mobility, function, because they can be down the track goals. The immediate goal is to just get them very comfortable in their sensitized state. And that already will do a lot in reducing especially chronic pain. It's very well evidence that if patients can start by desensitizing. Now, I want to give you another word for desensitizing because sometimes it's a bit sort of, you're not working in the field of pain so much. You're like, well, gee, what does that really look like? So another simple word is settling. We're just going to learn how to settle the pain. So desensitization is more a, a clinical word we do use. And if you use it for the allied health, they will get it. But for the patient, I would say the word, we're just going to send you to the physio to settle your pain, first of all, to know how. And nowadays, physios, ex-phys, I would say uh, very proudly in Australia, we do a marvellous job at that. And when patients feel, oh, settle, do that feel safe? Here we go with the safe plan. After that, once they've learned how to settle their pain well, which can take some time, then and only then will the physio and ex-phys start to graduate them into strength and conditioning. Mm. People will flare very quickly under a sensitive state if they get thrown into strength and conditioning straight away. Mm. They won't go very well. And maybe those are the instances where they will say, oh, I've been there, done that, doc. I'm not doing that again. Mm -hmm. But did they help you to learn how to settle the pain? Oh, no, don't know. I don't know about that. So... Simple muscle contraction, relaxation, just tangible things like that, they can actually reduce their inflammation, you know, quite quickly. So those are important words to use both in referring mm. and in to, uh, describing to the patient the why. Such an important word because, again, I had just jumped that step. Are there other important uh, steps, if you like, that uh, GPs can in our need to want to be actively helpful as quickly as we can, jump through, that might not actually be helpful to the patient. Cycle, uh, so in the movement aspect, that's the one that I think are typically the, the, the jump through too quickly. In a psychological aspect, um, it is also a little bit too uh, a rush sometimes. So patients, I mean, we all know, as I ex explained about the impact of chronic pain that the patient probably will highlight their contributing factors as, you know, anxiety, possibly, you know, sleep and hyperarousal and irritability, things that are quite, you know, psychological. But to say, look, I, I think we best see a psychologist can mm -hmm. be confronting. Mm -hmm. So I use the word there, support. Now, I would like to consider, or, you know, would you consider with me a support person who's clinically trained to help you to work through these um, worries that you have. Now, oh, but I already have my family member, you know, Mrs. Jones might say, oh, I've got plenty of support, I've got family, I've got friends. Well, 
they're not clinically trained and certainly someone who, you know, has a medical background will be really helpful to support you. Mm. And that sort of can start that dialogue of, so support people are thing, are people such as, so you already introduced that they're for support and can be counsellors, it can be psychologists. They teach you tools on how to settle your pain by using other areas of the body. Mm. So that that's very quick mm. in sort of, disseminate uh, dissipating the the fear Mm. of or the misinterpretation of hang on this doctor seemed all right and was taking interest now wants to send me to a psychologist there you go I knew it was coming I knew he was going to say it's all in my head you know and I think again that can while the intention's not that it can come across you know wrongly and the patient's um sensitivities are there emotionally as well and they might hear differently. When do you think is the right time to bring up these sorts of issues as we see them? I think by priority. So if the patient says, you know, if their priorities keep coming at family issues, anxiety, you know, I can't sleep, I'm very tense, you know, and and they're more movement phobic, then I would leave the movement part a little bit I wouldn't stress them out in going, oh, but move, motion is lotion, so let's move, you know. I, I just sort of leave that for now. I'd go, okay, it sounds to me your priority is more supports needed for you. Mm. Now, I've got clinical people who do that really well. I've got women um, support. I've got, you know, male support therapists. They look like as such, you know, psychologists, counsellors, even mental health nurses these days. Because what these patients need is they need to start off with anyway, very much the the basics of mindfulness, the basics of cognitive behavioural therapy. Now, those words will be too big for the patients at this point in time, but support, you know, you can then refer and write there, you know, patient would benefit from tools in mindfulness, had poor experience previously, you know, take it gently something like that for the therapist but you can use the words you know cbt would benefit if it's a very you know thought related belief system you know focused um issue so i think you can call them support people and then the tools so i always like to marry up the fact that these are support people to give you more tools to be able to address the priorities that you seem to be repeatedly telling me that you've got you know so it's prioritized so if that's a priority, mm-hmm. then that's where it goes. So far, you've mentioned two words, so really helpful words, settling and support. Are there any other key words like that that GPs should bring into our practice and vocabulary? Yeah, absolutely. I think settling is very good. Support's very good. Safe. I've said that a few times yeah, as yeah. well. Safe. The old, and I mean, it's not old, but there are circulating education that tells you to look at, you know, harm and no harm or protect. I, I tend to find that those replaced by the word safe mm-hmm. is a lot more positive and, you know, that it's more comfort. So yes. words that sort of, and any analogies, so words as those three, um, those three are very, very useful because um, they actually in themselves explain so much of the pain pathology, you know, in layman's terms. The use analogies, so analogies like I explained before, such as, um, look, there's a smorgasbord to eat. 
but let's just eat one at a time. Let's mm-hmm. pick out the dish, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. analogical type of um, explanations can give them a, a nice illustration and visual that's also positive. Now, you know, we're going to work in a team to conquer this game. So like in a soccer team, you don't just have the one goal kicker, right? You need the other team players. So we build them up slowly but surely so we can really win on this game. So that sort of, again, you know, men men appreciate that because they love their sports and they can sort of have the analogy. So not just using vocab but using analogies that you might think about as well. Sometimes I think the very obvious one that you do hear circulating in terms of pain pain analogies are, you know, when you try and explain why somebody is so in so much of a sensitized state in chronic pain and why simply, you know, sitting in a chair for an extra five minutes sends their body into intense pain. For example, right, a, a car ride that went for an extra little bit, you know, they didn't do anything exerting, but why in chronicity? So I sometimes explain that in terms of, you know, your, of course, you have to explain about the central nervous system, the brain and how it processes pain. But then I, I talk about, you know, the alarm system. It's built for our good, but now your alarm is very, very sensitive. So we have to help it to become less sensitive so that alarm doesn't go off at just an extra five minutes of setting we'll teach it and the techniques are the settling techniques that will help it to learn not to have to press that alarm button sooner than it's needed you know so it's, it's again helping them to understand the mechanism of pain so something real is going on there but then the safe words to use and that can really really send them along quite proactively You've taught me about value-based healthcare, where I need to value the person. You've taught me as a project manager to work according to the patient's priorities. And I'm going to look at words like safe and safety. I'm going to use words like settle and support and bring on board one at a time, according to their priority, the people who might best help them at that time. I've learned from you that we should use clear analogies so people understand. You gave us two. One is that, you know, we can prepare a smorgasbord together, but we can't eat it all at the same time. We're pretty sick. Let's start with one and enjoy it. You've also told me that maybe your alarm system is too sensitive and that we need to make it less sensitive and the settling techniques can help that. That's another analogy that I found really helpful. And another thing you said, which was so powerful to me, is to understand that the pain, the inflammation that's driving the pain is not just local, that we have to think big picture systemic inflammation and go for systemic anti-inflammatory measures. Um, Does that cover part, if not more, of what you've been trying to teach me? Absolutely, David, spot on. You've hit on all the right points there. And they will honestly carry both the clinician and the patient a very long way. Um, And everyone will come out, you know, feeling like they have real hope ahead. You know, you don't come out of that conversation as a clinician to a patient feeling a heart sink, you know, you come out empowered, the patient comes out empowered. And 
you just hand in hand. So fatigue actually is low from both sides. When you're both empowered, there's no fatigue. Practicing this, you know, a, a script or this sort of dialogue that you have can take some discipline. And it certainly can take a little bit of, uh, you know, role playing or, you know, your own self-talk when you're practicing it in the shower. <laughs> but for clinicians, we need to neuroplastically retrain our talk so that we actually can last in this. I've lasted in this area for 20 years and it is absolutely this language that continues to empower me every day to be able to sustain, you know, giving more. You're absolutely right. You are helping us to give our professional lives longevity and, in fact, teaching us to give more compassion to our patients with chronic pain. But, you know, I, I would love to get you back on board because you have given us vocabulary, sentences. You are teaching us to rewrite our script. And you know what it's like. Uh, we always say, see one, do one. Sometimes if you don't see one and you're locked in a cycle of bad habits, it's very hard to rewrite our script. So hopefully in the future, I might be able to get you back and look at other scripts uh, that can be rewritten. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be more than happy to do that. It really is an art. We, I, I never started 20 years ago talking like this, I must say. It's um, the, the world of pain and listening and hearing to my patients and actually getting their feedback has what's allowed this um, this training and being open enough to get that sort of feedback. But yeah, absolutely. If we can help clinicians to fast track this journey and the longevity, I think, of health from both sides of, you know, not having burnout from both the clinicians and or from the cycle of, you know, endless medical appointments of burnout, that can happen too. And I think at the end of the day, it, it reduces what I call moral injury. So we're all signed up in the health industry to do what's morally right. And when we've got skills to do so, we don't get injured ourselves, you know. We can really look after ourselves well and it, it just teaches us so many good practices, you know, mindfulness, which we tell our patients to do, we have to now do. And you apply it then, it becomes then very habitual. So now I don't know any other way of thinking. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'd love to share more. Why don't we just for now say to our listeners that there's more to come, um, but thank you for introducing us to a world where we are not driven by the need to prescribe something because that's what we feel the incredible pressure to do. And then as they walk out the door, feel that we've let them and ourselves down. Absolutely. Yep. No one needs to apologize after a talk like this. Everybody goes home very happy and um, very fulfilled at the end of the day. It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Joyce. Thank you Thanks. for your time. Thanks, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. 
You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.